You're listening to Semper Reform on the Radio, where the Bible alone and the Bible in its entirety is applied to all of life. I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast. But these are these are wolves. Truth be told, I, I oftentimes lay awake at night trying to figure out how I can get rid of wolves in the church. We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian. And so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple Riff around the radio, you know. We are polemical and polarizing Jesus style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as fashion is itself fashion. It's not hate, it's history, it's not fashion, it's the Bible. Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on. We're taking the gloves off. It's time to battle. Today, from the larger catechism. And so at any time, if you guys have questions, feel free to jump in, interrupt, just whenever. Um, It's fine. And uh, so let's, I guess, let's read it here. So let's jump to it. Can I start with prayer? Sure. I'll start. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for uh, this day, for uh, Christmas, for sending your son to die for our sins. Lord, we ask that you bless the fellowship and our study together and that you help us to um, edify you and be edified by it and to apply uh, the truths of your word and of the, the doctrine, the sound doctrine that we learned today. We thank you, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's read the question uh, first. So question 39 says, Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? And before we even read the answer, come on in, guys. Before we even read the answer, I want us to focus on a very important word, requisite. Who knows what requisite means? Requirement. Yeah. Necessary, uh, prerequisite, requirement. So notice how the question is phrased is already saying a lot. Um, why was it necessary or a requirement that the mediator should be men? And so the answer is obviously going to go on to explain why, but necessary is a very important thing because in other words there's no other way God could have done this God basically himself had to become a man and there's no other way that we could have been saved that he could have done any of the things that he did and a lot of people sometimes will say well God could have done anything he could have chosen to forgive us without necessarily uh, sending uh, his son to die and that's not true it's all a very intricate system that's tied together and if, if that was the case, then the Bible would have changed, too, because the Bible prophesies all of this. So it was necessary in the, in the strongest sense of the word 
that everybody, yeah, come on in. Everybody had, uh, the only way it could have happened is the way that it actually happened. Um, there's different views like Molinism and things like that. They talk about possible worlds and possible alternatives. There was no alternative. This was the only way that things could have happened. That it, it was necessary that the mediator had to be a man, had to become a man. Mediator being Christ, obviously, right? The God-man. And so let's go ahead and read the answer, and then we'll break it down part by part. So the answer says, It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in, in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. So this is an extremely pregnant uh, question. This is why it was necessary for, in summary, why it was necessary for the mediator to be a man in addition to God, which was the previous uh, question. And so uh, the first phrase here is that he might advance our nature. So in the catechism, there should be a reference there. I can pull it up here. What does the reference say in y'all's booklet? Does anybody have the the reference, the scripture reference? I think Hebrews it's. 2:16. Yeah, let's turn to that, to um, Hebrews 2:16. Who wants to read that? One. Hebrews 2, 16, right? That was the first scripture list. Yeah. Did I go? Go ahead, yeah. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Okay, right. So um, this is one of the reasons why he became a man and not an angel, for example, right? Because he died for men. For us men, uh, mankind, and so he didn't die for angels. Um, they have no mediator, and so uh, it was necessary for the. And this is all tied to covenant theology as well. So it, it's extremely important to understand the first covenant and what happened there, and, and when it was broken, it was necessary for him to become specifically a man in order to uh, repair what had been broken in the first covenant and so um, so that's why he had to become man and the offspring of Abraham Abraham obviously because of the prophecies talking about how uh, the, the seed of promise that Galatians also talks about that the seed of promise will redeem um, uh, his people the elect of God so um, and then the next let's see let's look at the next reference So the next reference here is 2 Peter 1.4. So we can turn to that one. I I have a different one, but I don't have the... Yeah, so 1.4. Okay, so 2 Peter 1.4 says... Um, oh, I'll start with three. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So here, the important phrase is become partakers of the, of this, of the divine nature. Okay, that's a very important uh, phrase, and that's what the question is basically hinting at, the answer, um, to advance our nature. To become partakers of the divine nature, what, what does that mean? Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? Does that mean that we will become God? The, the Holy Spirit, our spirit beings? Or, well, spiritual? Yeah, let's draw that out. What, so, it does. in Hinduism, there's this thing called a big soul, right? Like the great soul. I think it's called the, the great dharma or something. And when we die, we go back to become one with the great soul. And that's not obviously not what this is talking about, right? Become partakers of the divine nature is specifically referring to something that will happen to us on the last day. It starts with a G. Glorified body? Glorification, right? We'll be, we will become perfected um, at, the at the resurrection. Well, actually, that was my question. When, when, is, when is that going to happen? That's a very important uh, question, too. Uh, it basically means glorification, which means that our spirits... So when people die now, their spirits will be glorified in heaven, but their bodies are still in the grave. And so our bodies are not going to be glorified until Christ comes back at the resurrection. And it's extremely important to keep that in mind, especially with a lot of modern teachers, um, even people like John Piper, because they say glorification happens after the last judgment. So first, in order to be glorified, you have to be judged by God. And that's a very, that's a totally unbiblical notion. Because the Bible teaches that as soon as Christ comes back at the resurrection, we will be glorified instantly. It says we're all going to be caught up in the air, and the dead in Christ will be raised first, and then uh, the, I mean, those who are alive will be raised in Christ, and then the dead in Christ will also be raised um, in a glorified state. So that glorified state will happen as soon as uh, Christ comes back. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind there. That's essentially what it's referring to there. And so... Any questions about that, or comments, or? Okay. So the next phrase here is uh, perform obedience to the law, right? And here is the big question is obviously what law? What what law is being referred to here? What do y'all think? There's, is it the Mosaic Law? What's that? The Ten Commandments. Essentially, yeah. The, so there's different kinds of laws in the Bible, right? There's ceremonial laws, there's Mosaic Law, there's uh, <coughs> um, judicial laws that are tied to the Mosaic Law. But that's not, this is specifically referring to a specific kind of law, um, namely the moral law. It's called the, 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 the historical theology, the term is moral law. And moral law is what Christ came to fulfill for a very specific reason. And so if you turn to your, okay, let me, where are my notes here? So if we go to question, uh, I think it's 
and the Catechism, turn to question 92. So question 92 says this, what did God at first reveal unto man as a rule of his obedience? The rule of his obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides a special command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. Okay, so that's what the, that's what this is specifically referring to. Obviously, he, Christ fulfilled the entire law. He fulfilled the entire Mosaic law. He was a good Jew, and he kept the law perfectly. Um, but what he specifically needed to fulfill for us was the moral law. And so question 93, the next question answers that answers what the moral law is. So the, answer, the, the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto. In the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul, and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he owed to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. So this, what it's basically saying is that this is the law that all men are bound to, right? This is a law that doesn't change because there's different kinds of laws in the Bible. There's, um, the, in Reformed theology, there's a positive law and moral law. Moral law never changes. It's always the same. So it's always wrong to murder. It's always wrong to lie, cheat, steal, all that stuff, um, which is essentially summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's the moral law summarized. And then it's further summarized by Christ with the two great commandments, right? Love God and love your neighbor. So that is the essence of the moral law. And positive law is commands like the one that God gave to Abraham to, to kill his son, right? That's a positive command. It doesn't apply to us. We're not required to kill our firstborn or, or to kill the son of promise. Um, so that's positive law. This is moral law that applies to all men at all times, at all places. And we are bound to keep it personally, perfectly, and perpetually. And so that's in, a, in addition to the, the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, of knowledge of good and evil, the, the catechism here says that um, God revealed the moral law to Adam and all mankind in him. So essentially what this is referring to is the conscience, right? That we all have an innate knowledge of God and an innate knowledge of the moral law. And so the moral law was revealed to Adam because it was always wrong to murder. Would it have been okay to murder Eve or to murder Adam? Obviously not, right? It, it's not, it was always wrong to, to murder at all places and at all times, even before the garden, especially before the garden. And so... <coughs> Um, the so the concept here this is what it's referring to in the catechism in question 39 that this is obedience perfect in order for us to be redeemed somebody had to come and fulfill the law perfectly personally perfectly and perpetually in order to satisfy the terms of the covenant that were broken in Adam because what happened with Adam did he keep the law perfectly no, right? He broke the whole thing basically when he uh, got caught and ended up blaming his wife and they basically all wanted to follow their, themselves and the deception of the serpent instead of God. And so they broke the law. They broke the covenant. Okay, so that's another really important concept is they broke the first covenant that God made with man. 
and that is the covenant of works. Right? So the covenant of works, does, any, does everybody know what that means? The covenant of works, the first covenant? Who wants to take a shot at uh, defining it? Basic, just a basic overview of what it is. The first covenant, the covenant of works. It's conditional. You can eat any of the trees, keep my garden, but it, but it can't be your best. Yes. So basically, the and I, we don't have the. God made us to 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 take care of the land and dominion over the land and everything, and we are supposed to work the land. But the curse made us have to toil over the men. Right. To toil. So yeah, yeah. So a covenant. We need to probably define that too. A covenant. There's several different covenants in the Bible, right? A basic definition of a covenant is a commitment with divine sanctions. That's the most broadest definition that basically, for the most part, fits pretty much every covenant in the Bible. Because even marriage is a covenant, right? And so it's not always a covenant between man and God. It can be a covenant between two people. And so. A commitment with divine sanctions. And so uh, I'm going to read, we don't have it, but I'll just go ahead and read the, the Westminster Confession. And it, it's in the London Baptist as well. But the uh, So the Westminster Confession, Chapter 7, explains what that is. Before you go ahead, can you yeah. sanctions? What's that? Sanctions? Yeah. Sanctions means consequences, right? So if you obey, you get a reward. If you disobey, you die. You, you get punished, right? So, um, yeah, good question. So let me read uh, Westminster Confession, Chapter 7, Section 2. This is a section of God's covenant with man. Actually, this section was removed. uh, Well, this this section specifically was taken out and kind of moved around in the London Baptist Confession. Uh, But they hold to essentially the same covenant of works. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and and personal obedience. So that's a summary of what the covenant of works was in the garden. Now it's interesting here because a lot of people reject the covenant. They either reject it, the covenant of works, or they're they're ignorant of it. They don't don't believe it. They reject it or they... um, do other things with with the Bible that are even worse, but a lot of people don't believe it. Don't believe that it actually existed. That God never made a covenant with man, with Adam, with Adam specifically. And so it's really important. This is extremely important. It has implications on everything because it explains what man's fundamental problem is. What is man's fundamental problem? In summary. They want to retire. Well, it's it's basically the fall, right? It's we broke the first covenant. There was a covenant tied to the garden, and they did not have eternal life prior to keeping. A lot of people assume that too. They assume that Adam and Eve had eternal life automatically, and that's not the case. They had to earn. They had to do something, obey God, in order to gain eternal life. Because if they had eternal life, then why did they lose it? They would have, because if you eat, if you eat the fruit, you will die, right? Mm-hmm. So they did not have eternal life at that point. They had to do something to earn it. That's the fundamental works principle tied to um, the the covenant of works. That's why it's called the covenant of works. 
because you have to do something in order to earn uh, a reward, eternal life, glorification. What's that? Obedience. Yeah, it's obedience. You have to obey God perfectly. And so a lot of people think that this is not in the Bible, but you can actually, it's extremely easy to prove in the Bible. It's, it's required, there's, there's one simple little Bible phrase, a two-word Bible phrase that proves the covenant of works. Does anybody, any guess as to what that could mean? Well, which, what phrase that could be? And to, to take a hint, to give a hint, it's in 1 Corinthians. In fact, let, let's go to 1 Corinthians verse 22. What chapter? I'm sorry, 15. Chapter 15, verse 22. Who wants to read that? Fifteen twenty-two. Anybody want to read it? For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. There you go. So the phrase is in Adam, right? In Adam is referring to that original covenant, and this is drawing a parallel here that is further developed in Romans as well. Romans 5, for example, and we're, we're going to get to that right now. But this is this is showing that in Adam, there's a parallel, right? In Adam and Christ. In Adam, all die. So in Adam, we all die because we are, we are all reckoned guilty. We're all born guilty. What are we guilty of? Before even sinning, we're guilty of something. What is that? Adam's, Adam's sin, right? We're all legally guilty of Adam's sin. So we're born condemned. That's why none of us could have fulfilled the law, because we're already guilty. We're, we're, we're dead and condemned from the start. What, what was that? Yeah, yeah, right. So this, all, in Adam, also means that he was our, the, the term is called federalism. Federalism comes from the Latin foitus, and that just means covenant. So... In Adam means that Adam was our head. He was our federal head or covenant head. Our covenant head means that he was our representative. Right? This all sounds familiar, right? Because Christ is our what? He's our representative. He is our head. He is our federal representative in the new covenant. The covenant of grace, right? The covenant um, that he came to satisfy on our behalf. And so, likewise, we were in Adam. And so whatever Adam did, he did not only not only for himself, but in all of mankind, all of his posterity. And so this is what the covenant of works is, and it's an extremely important doctrine that gets either ignored, misunderstood, or rejected because people don't understand it or they don't know they don't understand where it comes from in the Bible. And this has implications on everything because it's it it explains why we are in a why we're sinners, why we're why we're condemned. Um, I'm yeah. Um, so were Adam and Eve saved by their works? Or? No. They died, right? Uh-huh. They failed. They didn't keep the covenant. If they had kept the covenant, what would have happened? If they had obeyed God in the garden, they would have gained eternal life. They would have gained uh, glorification, right? Because the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? 
if they had kept the covenant perfectly, they would have been glorified. They would have gained glorification and eternal life. That was the goal. And and for all of us, it, it would have been for all of us. He would have done it for 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 everybody's behalf. They failed. They broke the covenant. They 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 broke the covenant. Therefore, they died. Right now, there's it's they they believed. They eventually came to believe in Christ. Right in the promised Messiah, because God says in Genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman will crush the serpent and will be um it's, it, yeah it will lead to saving the elect. But that was a foreshadowing of the new covenant. But because the first covenant was broken. Somebody else, in order for us to be saved and not be condemned, somebody else had to come and satisfy the original terms of that covenant. So right? So they knew that, well, yeah, right? God said that the day that they needed them, the you, sh- the you will surely they die. They did know, I mean, yeah. They knew, yeah. That to me, because I had highlighted it when I read it, right? And you just totally answered my question. I had asked myself, because I don't know all the translations, but in my... Uh, I think King James. Mm-hmm. It says, for in the day that you eat of it. It doesn't say if, or it just, it's literally a statement. Yeah. For in the day, in other words, he's already, he already planned for them to eat it. It's for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's, that's more so, of an old English. Okay. It's not, so it's I not. I was like tripped out when yeah. I said that. I was like, wow. You know, it's not, yeah, sure. no, it's not, it's not telling them you're, you're already damned he he was laying the terms of the covenant right if you disobey you will die that's the covenant of works if you fail to obey you're going to be punished if you keep it you will be rewarded right you will be uh, glorified with eternal life and so so they didn't know I guess so you would say like that's the first gospel 315 Genesis 315 is a foreshadowing yeah they 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 had types and shadows, right? There were types and shadows. It, it's they don't know as much as we know now because it's after the first co- the new covenant came. But they had an idea. You were saved by believing in the promised Messiah, right? In the Old Testament, you believed in the promised Messiah. You didn't exactly know how that was going to look. You had there were shadows, foreshadowings, and things like that, prophecies that it, that hint at what it was going to be like, but. Yeah, when when that that was a that was a form of covering their sin, right? Mm-hmm. It was a it was a symbolic of covering their their nakedness so because they exposed. The first, um, they they sacri- God slaughtered uh, goats, or lambs, lambs or something like that, to uh, in a sense to cover to a symbolic covering. That's what's it, um, ushers it, because in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus. 17:11 it says without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sins right so blood has to be shed so then is that like the first time that Adam and Eve um, were you know made aware or, or taught or you know about the about the messiah yes they they didn't know yeah because everything it was hypothetical before hypothetically they could have kept the covenant but of course in God's plan it, the, the he predestined it for them to disobey 
He made th that. That was always the plan, right? And so, um, yeah, this is a really, this is very uh, detailed. There's so much in this question, and so it's really important to to understand that. And so, if we go to the cat to the catechism, uh, question 20. Yes. No, this is a this is a larger catechism. I may have a modernized version of it. So question twenty. Okay. Question twenty says, What was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? The providence of God toward man and the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, ordaining marriage for his, his help, affording him communion with himself, and instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal perfect and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. Okay, so that's a really, <coughs> that's another kind of more detailed summary of that original covenant. Here they say the covenant of life, which was the first covenant that God made with man. And so um, the uh, verse, there's a, there's a verse here. So the covenant of life is the same as the covenant of work? Yes, yeah, exactly. Um that's also why God kicked them out. He said, you can't be here anymore because if you eat of the knowledge of free of, 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 of the tree of life, you'll live forever. So they broke it so they couldn't partake in that anymore. So they were, they were condemned and cast out. Um, so live forever physically, is that what it's referring to? It's forever in the sense that we will live forever when we are resurrected. We will never die. We're going to have so a glorified body. No. Before the fall, they had to earn it. There was a pro it's called a probationary period, right? Mm -hmm. God was testing them in, during that time to make sure that to, to so that they wouldn't eat of the of the bad tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and in so doing they would have gained eternal life upon that. And so this this is drawn out further. So let's go to Galatians 4:4. 4, 4 to kind of unpack that a little bit more. So, <coughs> so Galatians 4.4 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that's, again, showing you Christ had to be born, subjected to the law, the same law that was bound uh, to Adam, that was given to Adam, and all of his posterity in him, had to be, he had to be born under that same law in order to fulfill it and in so doing, earning righteousness on our behalf, right? 
We couldn't keep the law perfectly. We never, we can't. We're already born condemned. There's no way. There's just no way. And on top of that, we have a sinful nature to, to, to add fuel for, to the fire, right? There's just no way. It's, it's impossible. The only way, that's why the virgin birth was necessary as well, right? He couldn't have been born of man because man is by nature corrupt now after the fall. And so um, all of this, as, as we start understanding this, is closely tied together and related into the system of doctrine that's revealed in the Bible. And so there's so many parallels with Christ and Adam throughout the Bible that explains what, what was what Christ, the reason why Christ came. And so um, if we go to also to Matthew 3.15, I don't know if that one is listed there, but this is also an important uh, verse that sheds light on this. So Matthew 3.15 says, but, okay, let me start in 13. Verse 13, yeah. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. That phrase there, it was fitting... uh, for him to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness, fulfill all righteousness, keep the law perfectly, right? Satisfy the, com- the, the terms of the covenant that Adam failed miserably to keep. And so you can even see a further, one of the starkest, uh, starkest parallels. Um, Adam was in perfect paradise. He had everything he needed, and yet he still failed miserably, right? He failed, he just... Failed, flat out failed. By contrast, Christ had to endure much more severe uh, circumstances in order to keep his part of the covenant um, to earn righteousness for us, right? What's the parallel to uh, Adam being in paradise? Where was Christ thrown into for 40 days? The wilderness, right? The desert. No food, no water. Forty days and nights he was in the wilderness undergoing the temptation, a similar temptation that Adam went through in the garden with the serpent, right? That's a parallel. That's an explicit parallel given in the Bible to show Christ came here to do something that Adam could not do, that Adam failed to do, right? And he passed with flying colors. He passed perfectly, even with dire circumstances, right? Because he was subject to infirmities. He was subject to the curse. He was not himself sinful by nature, but he was subject to all of the same things that we go through in terms of hunger, pain, and, and, and all of that stuff. And so, and temptation, to be tempted by Satan and, to, and all of those things. So, uh, we can now, so let's turn to, uh, there's, there's a verse that the catechism points to here. Uh, Romans 5.19 And I was saying earlier, if you have any questions, like feel free to interrupt, feel free to jump in, comments, whatever. And feel, just, yeah. 
talking to some some kid and uh, he he asked him. So is it? Like, I don't know if he used is it a sin to be born? And Ryan said yes. So I mean, you know, David when David said come to mind, but like can you kind of explain? So yeah. Let's um, let's. There's a really there's a question that answers your answers your question perfectly. Okay, let's go to question 25 in the larger catechism. So that one says, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherewith wherein to man fell? The answer is so the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which commonly called, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. That's why. Because after the fall, we were all born legally guilty and with a sinful nature. So we're born guilty and with a sinful nature that prevents us from doing anything good. It's like doing genetics or something. It's, we are, that's how, that's how damning the effects of the fall were. But they, I understand how you, we're, we're, we have a sinful nature, but just like to say that it's sinful to be born. It's not a sin to be born. It's a sin, it's a sin to be Adam's. We're, 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 be, by virtue of being an Adam, mm-hmm. anybody who's born is automatically guilty mm-hmm. in Adam. Sin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're automatically guilty, even before actually sinning. Uh-huh. Right? Right, yes. Um, so that, that's the, the, the but federal. It's not a sin to be born. No. N- no. Like you're not, like, um, well, see, you're, you're, even before you're born, You're no well. You you you're a sinner the moment you're born. Yeah, the moment you're born, you're conceived even. Yeah, you're a sinner. You're a, you're legally guilty in Adam's sin. So yeah, at conception. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, that's but that is part of the fall, right? Because the the sufferings of childbirth is part of the consequences of the fall as well. Um, so would it be, because I've heard some, when, when people reference us as sinners, right, I've heard the saying, um, we, we don't sin because we're sinners, we sin because we, that's our nature, because we are sin? Or that, yeah, we, we don't, to say that? yeah, we don't, um, what is that saying? Yeah, what is that saying? we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. Okay. Yeah, that, so that's a, that's a, Proper That's what Jesus was saying with the good tree and the bad tree, right? A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, only good fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. It's an ontological problem, right? That's what Luther was in the Luther movie. One of the Luther movies, uh, there was he was he was that was part of the dis, the, the debate between Rome and Luther. He's saying a, a you you can't do anything good because you're a bad tree, right? Your nature needs to be changed. You need to be regenerated. Right, we need the regenerating power of the Spirit of God in order for us to do good in the first place. And so, besides, so apart from that, we're sinners and only sin do nothing but evil. What can you repeat that saying again? 
We sin because we're sinners. Because we're sinners, yeah. We're born sinners and born condemned. So let's go to uh, Romans 5. Let's start with verse 12. Verse 12. <clears throat> so this is a little lengthy, so I'm just going to read through it. Starting at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's disobedience the many will be made righteous. And what we just read is essentially what's summarized in the questions that we've been reading in the catechism, right? It's exactly what's being summarized. Verse 18 is very clear. As one trespass by Adam led to condemnation for all men, we are all condemned because of Adam's sin. And so... Um, but there it says to all men resulting in justification. So where's the... Where's the uh, so one act of righteousness. So one act of righteousness. Oh yeah, it's a parallelism. And in there's Hebrew. It's a, it's a it's a figure of speech. It's like a it's a parallelism is what it's called. It's not saying everybody was justified. That's obviously not what I'm saying. Uh, that, because people go to hell, right? There's people who are condemned. Um, it's just drawing on a parallelism that all who are in Christ, right? In Adam all die. In Christ shall all be made alive. You have to be in Christ. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it because Christ was the one who fulfilled that covenant. And if you are not in him, what are the conditions of the new covenant? How are we in Christ? How are we brought in Christ, in union with Christ? Generation Well, yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? The five solas, by grace through faith. Faith is how we are brought into the new covenant. We, we go from being dead in Adam, and Adam all die, right, to alive in Christ. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So do we get the, the gift of faith in order to be regenerated? No. Like well, that's that's a big issue. Sorry. Of, well, that's, that's the big issue. <laughs> well, what, what would you all say? What, what would you all say? Right? This is, this is the very issue of the Reformation. This is what Luther was debating in the bondage of the will, right? In order for us to believe, because a man must be born again, right? Do we, have, do we have the power to do that on our own? To regenerate ourselves? No, right? We're sinful by nature. The Bible says explicitly, even in Romans 8, it says, we are, the, the, the natural man 
is that constant hostility against God. He is unable to satisfy or to please God in any way. We have no desire, not even a desire, right? Romans 3, right? All are, are under sin. No one seeks after God. No one wants God. All of them are, are condemned. There's no desire. In order for us to even have a desire to believe, God first has to regenerate us. And that's so the big debate. Happens first and then yes. We, and then we, uh, and then we believe. And, all of wow. and then we believe, and then we're sanctified. All of that. So yeah, that's that. That's what it, that is one of the main issues in Luther's Bondage of the Will. If you guys haven't read that book, highly, highly recommend it. It is Luther's like masterpiece. Luther's Bondage of the Will. Bondage of the Will. Yeah. And uh, so. This is all showing you what the stipulations of that covenant were and why it was necessary for Christ to come, right? To perform obedience to the law. That's what that phrase is talking about. So the next phrase in question 39 is suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. So, yeah, let's let's do that one. Suffer and make intercession for us in our nature. Well, we can do them together. Have a fellow feeling of our infirmities. So, what verses are listed in y'all's in y'all's uh, booklet for that one? For the suffering, make intercession for us in our nature. Okay, yeah, that's that's the ones I have. So let's go to Hebrews, Hebrews 2:14. I think we already read this. 2:14. Yeah, here we go. So start, verse 14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all who those who through fear of death were subject to a lifelong slavery. And uh, where is the verse? Okay, I'm looking for the verse. So this is just showing his... his Christ had a... How many offices did Christ have? Prophet, priest, and king, right? This is explaining his priestly office, right? What would a priest do in the Old Testament? There's a sort of a mediator, right? They would they they would administer sacrifices of animals, right, to the temple, as um, for several reasons, right? Sin offerings, guilt offerings, free will offerings, but the priests were sort of mediators between the people of God and the, and God Himself, and they would uh, offer sacrifices because Leviticus 17:11 or 19:11 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So in order for God to cover the sins of the people, uh, they, they had to offer sacrifices, right? And the Day of Atonement was the day in which the priests would offer sacrifices for the entire nation of Israel. And uh, that Day of Atonement was very symbolic, which is exactly the language of, that uh, John the Baptist was using when he saw Christ come to be baptized. What did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, right? That's the priestly office of Christ that he came to fulfill on our behalf 
And in order to do that, like the question is phrased, it was necessary for him to become a man in order to do that, right? To be a mediator, he had to become a man in order to uh, fulfill the righteousness that Christ, that Adam failed to fulfill and to offer himself as a sacrifice, um, as a sacrifice for us. And there's there's another... I'm trying to look for that verse that... Yeah, let's go to that one. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25. So back in the Old Testament times, I mean, you can't just say, I'm going to get up one day and I'm going to be a priest. Like that, that was anointed by God somehow over the prophets and the judges or whatever. Right. So how does the Catholic Church answer to that when there's none of that happening right now? Well, where, where do they get their friendship from? Yeah. Do they just wake up and say, I'm going to be the Pope and change yeah, yeah. themselves? The, there's obviously a huge... <laughs> in a matter of cent- it took it took a matter of centuries for the Catholic Church to develop into the monster that it is now, right? Centuries of corruption, of bad, false doctrine, and Obviously, they have a priesthood, and they say call, is, they basically ignored the book of Hebrews, right? Because Hebrews says Christ offered Himself once for all, and it was a finished sacrifice. There's no longer a need to offer any more sacrifices because Christ satisfied and our sins as the ultimate sacrifice, right? There's no more priesthood for that very and reason. The priest, the, the Prophet, priest, and king. And king. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the Bible, t- we have several titles ourselves. We're we are a royal nation. We are all kings and queens in God's kingdom in Christ. One of the benefits is that we are kings and queens. We are royalty. We will inherit the earth. That's what it's referring to. Because because Christ. Yeah. Because Christ is king, right? And because we are adopted, we become partakers of that blessing of adoption and we will inherit all things everything so they're just taking their down what's that they're just taking their down we're saints we're saints we're priests everybody yeah everybody in Christ is a saint uh, and we're in union with Christ and so <laughs> yeah so let's go did we okay let's go ahead and read uh, let's go ahead and read that, that verse, starting in verse 23. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. So even now, Christ is our advocate, right? The Bible says that he is our advocate, and he is our high priest, making it making the office, the Old Testament office of a priest, totally obsolete. And that's why Hebrews 9 says that the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is completely obsolete. It's dead. There is no need whatsoever to do anything in the Mosaic Covenant that is tied to the ceremonial law because that ceremonial aspect of the priestly office was completely satisfied by Christ. Okay? So, uh, let's go to Hebrews 4... 15. Now, let's 
So in verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, that, oh, yeah, okay, so, so this is another aspect t- tied to uh, his priestly office, obviously, right? He became a man to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So he was subject to the fall. He was subject to the curse of the fall. But there's a major exception to that, and that is by, virtu- by virtue of the f- virgin birth. What is the only exception that Christ had uh, as a consequence of the fall? What is the one exception to that? Without sin, and he, he, he had a, a sinless nature, right? His human nature was sinless, unstained by Adam, because he was not born uh, through Adam. He was born through the Holy Spirit impregnating Mary, right? So he was exempt from being born in sin and being having a sinful nature. Now this leads to another important, uh, uh, what do you call it, implication, right? Because here we want to be careful not to uh, overextend what the Bible is saying here. It says, in every respect has been tempted as we are. So when we're tempted, the Bible talks about that the reason there's problems with us is because we are tempted. What is it that tempt us? Our, our own lusts, right? It's an internal problem. We have an internal problem because we have a sinful nature. So because we have a sinful nature, the flesh is what the Bible calls it, right? The flesh makes us desire evil and actually commit evil, right? Christ was not subject to any of those things. All of his temptations were external, in other words. He did not have a corrupt mind. He did not have a corrupt heart. He did not have a corrupt nature. So he was not in any way subject to wicked desires. He was only tempted externally, but by virtue of the curse of the fall, by virtue of the devil, by virtue of being subject to, to his surroundings, basically. And so that, it's important to keep that in mind. That's why it says, yet without sin. Right, because he'd never sinned, and he didn't have a sinful nature. So, Go ahead. Um, so, so then it wouldn't be a, a, a truthful statement to say that, in, like, for ourselves, when we're tempted, it's not a sin until you follow through with that sin, because it yeah. already began since our thoughts. Right. Our so, this, this is the, this becomes a big, a bigger issue tied to. Uh, Romans 7, right? Romans 7 and the, what exactly the flesh is, right? Um, and this also ties into regeneration. Because when we are born again, we receive a new heart, right? A new heart and a new nature, which makes us desire God's will. However, there's a problem. We still sin, Right? As Christians, we still sin. And we can still commit heinous sins, even as Christians. Nobody's exempt from committing sin, even now, as Christians. Um, but we are sanctified, right, by God's Spirit living in us. And so we are actively being sanctified by God's Spirit. And also we play a part, right, by going to church, listening to sound preaching, studying the Bible. All of that sanctifies us because Christ said that we are sanctified by the truth, right? John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth sanctifies us and sets us free. Like John said, 8.32, right? So, regeneration, we receive a new heart, a new nature, 
Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. And cr- if what how any what, what I blank. And any yeah, he is a new creature, right? A new creation. Behold, behold means there's a visible change. You will have a new nature, and you will be inclined into doing good, and you will actually be able to perform good works. Before that, you had no good works on your on your all of our. That's what Isaiah is talking about. All of our righteous deeds, Isaiah 64, 6, our righteous deeds were filthy rags in God's eyes because we were born condemned and we have a sinful nature. Nothing that we can do, there's nothing that we could have done that was a good work prior to, yeah, prior to uh, to, to being regenerated, right? Because we have to be turned into a good tree first, right? There's a, now there's a debate as to what the flesh exactly is, right? Um, and there's differences of, of opinion on if the flesh includes the heart, your inner man, your spirit, or if it only is your body now. So that's that's kind of a debate between, and there's also an issue of whether man is a tripart being or, or, or a dichotomous being, whether we have a body and a soul or a body, spirit, and soul. So there's, there's a lot of ancillary doctrines that are tied to this question. Yes. Yeah. So James, I think, right? That he'll provide a way of yeah, for you to deal with the temptation. Yeah. Yeah. So, but so then, are so is it sin though? When when you're tempted, like is that? No, no, it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to yield to it, right? And it, we yield to it because of our flesh. God regenerates our mind, our spirit, because of our flesh, right? It depends on how you define flesh, because. Uh, like, like the, there's those different views, right? I would personally take the view that the body is the flesh exclusively, because God gave us a new heart. If you, if God gave us a new heart, and you're saying it's still sinful and still wicked, that's kind of a problem, right? Did God give you a sinful heart, a sinful new heart? Well, I would say no. Some people say that no, we're still totally depraved in the sense that even though we are regenerated, we're still uh, there, there's still remnants of sin in our in our heart. Which again, I don't, I don't think that makes sense. But some people take that view. Um, our church, Pastor Joe has preached on that. If any, if you guys remember, but um, it's a, but it's you have to think about the implications, right? So God gives us a new heart. That means something. And so, yeah, we sin because of our flesh. And so, uh, so that's yeah. He has a fellow feeling of our infirmities. And uh, so that's basically what that's t- referring to there. And uh, so if we continue on in the question here, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. So let's let's go to, uh, I think it's in Galatians. Um, yeah, Gal- Galatians 4, 5. Is it? Okay. Ten Bible pages here. It makes it hard to turn. Up. Okay. 
Galatians 4, uh, starting, we'll start in verse 4. So, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Right? So, that's just basically taking it straight out of that verse. Right? When in Christ we become adopted. That's one of the benefits um, of, of being saved. Right? We, we receive the adoption of sonship, we, whereby we can God call God Father. And we receive all of the blessings that come with being a son of God, which is eternal life, glorification, the entire universe becomes ours. We, we partake in all of that uh, by virtue of adoption. And so, uh, the, what was the next? Uh, okay, let me go back to the question. And uh, Yeah, so let's turn to, uh, what verse is that? Hebrews yeah, Hebrews 4.16. So, anybody want to read that one? 4.16? Yeah. There, so that's literally just taking it from the right from that verse, right? We have access to God as uh, this is extremely important because there's con- this this has implications on the final judgment as well, right? When we are in Christ, uh, the judgment was satisfied by who? The condemnation. Who was it satisfied by? Christ. It was by Christ, right? Christ paid for the condemnation, the punishment of sin, which was condemnation, right? Eternal condemnation. <coughs> and so, so rather than facing God on final judgment, because everybody's going to have a final judgment, right? We're all going to, everyone is, will face God on the final judgment. But for Christians... The throne is going to go from being a throne of judgment to a throne of what? A throne of grace, right? This has huge implications for, and this is where false teachers like Piper, John Piper, perverts this completely because he says we're going to face Christ as judge. But the Bible says Christ is not our judge anymore. He's our advocate, right? He is our mediator and our advocate. And when we face God at final judgment, we're going to face him as a father because we become adopted, right? He's no longer our judge. The sin problem becomes a domestic issue rather than a criminal legal issue because Christ satisfied the legal punishment. So now all sin is treated domestically, father and son. He corrects us. He rebukes us, right? He may even kill us if we sin that badly. And that's happened in the Bible before, right? People sin and he'll take you out if you sin badly enough. But you may that doesn't mean you're condemned. That just means he rebukes us because he's a loving father, right? So when we face God at final judgment, 
that throne of judgment is converted into a throne of grace for us. And we, we alluded to earlier that when we're glorified, when Christ comes back, we will already be instantly glorified before even setting foot in the final judgment. So we already know where we're going to go. When Christ comes back, we're going to know instantly. We're going to have glorified bodies. We're not going to have any sweat about the judgment. Because we already know, I have a heavenly body, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to approach God at the throne of grace and be rewarded for my good works. There is going to be a judgment of works, right? The good works will be rewarded. The good works so will be rewarded. We're not going to be judged, but it's based on We're not going to be, yeah, we're not going to be judged. We were judged in Christ. We're going to, our works will be judged. Our works will be judged in order to be rewarded. Not to be, not to determine if we're going to heaven, like Piper says, right? That's what Piper says. Yeah. You have to pass the final judgment test in order to attain heaven, get access to heaven. But we have access to heaven in who? He who believes shall have what? Eternal life. John 5.24 says, He who believes in me shall not come into judgment. Right? The judgment is over for us. It was settled at the cross. Legally settled at the cross completely. He paid for them all. That's what Hebrews talks about all over the place. Right? So that is basically what this question, as you can see, this question is talking about a whole bunch of stuff. And it's tying it together by virtue of Christ becoming a man, right? So I think we can probably wrap it up there. And uh, any other questions or comments? You were speaking about uh, regeneration, a new heart. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a popular doctrine uh, among evangelicals and cardinal Christians. Should we even consider? Which one? What is it called? Uh, Cardinal Cardinal Christians. Oh. Can be genuinely yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, the 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 Bible does talk about you are carnal, right? You're being carnal. Dispensationalism, which is not what we believe. We are reformed, so we believe in covenant theology instead of dispensationalism. But very, uh, the more extreme versions of dispensationalism dispensationalism believe that you can be a carnal Christian and still be saved. Meaning that you you can even get to the point where you don't even believe in God anymore. And you can still be saved. But that's not, obviously not, because that's basically a denial of regeneration, right? So when God saves us, he regenerate. that means something, right? And I, one of the, and I, and I highly recommend people uh, check out there's a sermon by Paul Washer called, uh, uh, what is it called? It's it's um, Having to Love View of Regeneration. Paul Washer, I f- completely agree with Paul Washer and the issue of Romans 7 and uh, regeneration. Having that, what? Having to love view of regeneration. To love Yeah. And that, that has huge consequences. If you under, you It's so easy to undermine the doctrine of regeneration, even as reformed people. <laughs> Because they intend to overemphasize total depravity. Like we remain depraved after being regenerated. And that's true, but in a more limited sense now. It's much more limited because God gave us a new heart and a new, and a new, we're a new crea- creature. Yeah, right. So, we're, and we're actively being sanctified by God's Spirit, right? So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot to chew on. On this question, um, but 
Yeah, I think, yeah, we can wrap it up there and close. Yes. Sure. Um, okay, you said something about that Adam and Eve went through a probationary period. Yes. Yes, yeah. I, I never heard that. What was that in the scriptures? So the parallels are the ones we talked about in Romans 5. The, the test that Adam and Eve had undergone, it was not a perpetual test. They were not supposed to obey forever the, the, the uh, commandment to not eat of the fruit, of the bad tree, right? That bad tree was there for a specific uh, window of time, and it, we can deduce, we can deduce to what to some extent, like if they had kept that, if they had uh, rejected the serpent of of the temptation of the serpent, then there's a sense in which you can see that they would have gained, they would have uh, gained eternal life because they would have been able to eat of the tree of of life and gain that glorified state. It was not a perpetual. Uh, test because Christ's test was not perpetual either. He did not have to be a man forever to gain our righteousness, right? It was this moment in time where he had to be born, live perfectly up until adulthood, and then offer his, his life as a sacrifice. And so you can the parallels are also drawn again. You see, in order to make sense of the covenant of works, you have to look at what Christ did. Because some of it is hidden in the Old Testament. This is part of the concept of progressive revelation, right? And the Old Testament is not as clear. It does talk about it and it hints at it. Hosea 6.4 is another verse. It talks about like Adam, they transgressed the covenant that God made with Adam. But in the New Testament, it gives more clearly what the terms of the first covenant were. And one of those parallels is the temptation in the wilderness. Christ has to pass that test in a similar way that Adam had to pass the test of not being, not yielding to the serpent, right? And then Romans 5 continues to talk about how obedience was required in order to earn eternal life. There's a works principle in the Bible. It's extremely important. If you deny that, you deny, you're denying Christ and what he did for us to satisfy righteousness on our behalf. He didn't just die on the cross for our sin. He had to gain perfect Righteousness, a perfect standing. It's not enough to clear to clear our guilt record, right? We have to be perfect in order to enter heaven. So he couldn't have just come and been born and, and, and died by the way. He, no, he had to go exactly. Process. He had to fulfill the first covenant, perfectly keep it, so that we could be reckoned positively, perfectly and fully righteous in God's eyes. So there's a that's called double imputation, where Christ pays the punishment for our sin, but also we are, his righteousness is transferred legally to us by virtue of the new covenant when we believe, right? So that's extremely important. And you have to tie the scriptures together. You can't just stick to the Genesis account because it doesn't give you that much information. You have to keep looking in Romans and Corinthians, all of those verses talk about in Adam, uh, by the, you know, Romans 5. All of that is expounding what the covenant of works required and what Christ had to do in order to fulfill that original covenant for us and take us out of Adam, right? So that's in some... Um, and I also did a... We did two podcast episodes on the covenant of works uh, on Semper Reformanda Radio. So if you want to 
I can send a link to 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 you guys if you want to listen to it. It's episodes 85 and 86, I think. Um, we had a two-part series talking about this and going through what it means to do the covenant works and all of that stuff. But um, yeah, that's basically. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I, heard, I, heard, I don't know if it's okay if I read this, but I heard this passage given as a I think it was a discussion on the covenant works, kind of a summary in the New Testament uh, where Jesus gave. It's uh, right before the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. In Luke. Uh, 10, uh, 25 says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, I'm sorry, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Amen. Which means you can. <laughs> That's the condition. <laughs> That is a, a one-line summary of the condition of the first covenant. Do this and live. Therefore, live if you do it, if you obey, right? That's, and we fail, right? That's why we have to be in Christ in order to live eternally. So there, that's yeah, a perfect verse to capstone it on. Um, Since we're talking about the, this, when you guys brought up Genesis, um, I know I've heard and I've read, I don't remember where, where it talks about how Adam is blamed and that the question of why is it Adam's fault, not Eve's. And then it says that in the New Testament how he was to blame that he knew and she didn't. So can you elaborate on that, how that was possible? Very good question. He knew, yeah. Like how did he know? Very good question. Okay. Our federal head, was it Eve or Adam and Eve or Adam? Adam. Adam. In Adam. Right? Specifically Adam, not Eve. Eve was not our federal head. Adam was. Eve was in Adam. She came from Adam, right? So even Eve is in Adam, right? So everybody is in Adam. Now it does say in Timothy, I think, that this the woman was deceived. Yeah. But Adam went along with it. Yeah. He he yielded to the his wife. And then he blamed her for it, right. and which made him <laughs> compounding his guilt, right? He yeah. failed it miserably. He failed the covenant. He couldn't have broken it in a worse way. So is that the answer? Yes. Because he, he's the federal. He's the first man. He is the one that we are, even Eve is in Adam. So then how, I know there's, there's some questions. It's a good question. Sorry, but how then in Genesis it said, Go ahead. And we're talking about Adam, and then. Oh, I thought she said it was a question. <laughs> ah, it just left me. It left me. You can. We can follow up afterwards. It's yeah. We can follow up and and talk about it. Um, so let's close. Let's close with a word of prayer. And um, anybody want to pray? Close us with prayer. I got it on tape, so I'll, I might post it up on the. Anyway, the, I'll, I'll close this out on a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for this time of fellowship and of learning your word. Help us to digest these truths, to meditate on them, to understand them and what they fully uh, their implications and to apply this to our lives and in our walk with you, Lord. We thank you for your blessings, We uh, for the for the ability to do this study. We ask that you continue to bless it and to help us to be faithful to your word. And uh, 
uh, to declare the whole counsel of God. We thank you and we ask this in, pre- in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank I you all for coming. Yeah. How did Eve know what was said if she wasn't born yet or she wasn't made yet? That was my question. That, that's, How did she know what to say to the serpent yeah. if she wasn't there? That's why in the, in the catechism question that we read, it says that the moral law was revealed to Adam and everyone in him. Because so she didn't exist. It was, it was a conscience, and Adam. Adam and that's why she added the end Yeah, Adam. Adam obviously must have told Eve. I, actually, I don't remember when, if they, if he told him after he was created or before. I think it might have been after. Because I kept reading it over and over, and I'm like, wait, she wasn't created yet. How did she know? Adam. Adam would have. Adam would have told her, right? Or and also by virtue of our. Yeah, but but the, but the tree. The tree was a positive command. That was a positive command tied to the covenant of works. We don't have to obey that command because we are not even in that circumstance anymore, right? That was a positive command for Adam. And it was a, it was a symbol of if you pass that tree test, you will gain eternal life from the other tree of life, right? So that's the kind of the that's why there's a parallel there. So but yeah, that's a great great question. So yeah. What what's that? I, I, it might have just been Adam, but Adam, as the head, had the responsibility to keep it right, and to and his first wife, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. I'm confused because you know you can eat of every tree in the garden except this tree, but there were two trees. There was the tree of the knowledge you couldn't eat, and there was the tree of life. So where the two was. Were they supposed to not, was Adam supposed to not mess with That's a good question. Um, that's a good question. The, the circumstances are such that it seems like the, 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 the conditions were placed so that Adam and Eve would be exposed to the bad tree first, right? Okay. So before they got a chance to eat of it, they didn't get a chance to eat it, right? Because the Bible says you need to get kicked out because if you eat of the tree of life, you'll live forever. So they didn't even eat it. They didn't touch it. They were the circumstances were orchestrated so that God made sure that they ran into the bad tree first, and they had to pass that test in order to gain access to the you know in that sense. So yeah, they. Okay. Because yeah. then it says that he made her. Then it says, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and yeah, well, notice she actually changed it. She said you can't even touch it. Yeah. Right? She changed it. So it's kind of like uh, when you do, like, you pass on, like, a rumor or something. Kind of, yeah, in a way. It's like, yeah, in a way. It's kind of like something got lost in translation there, and she said you can't even touch it, but that wasn't the command. The command was just don't eat of it. Maybe that was Adam just scaring the voice out of her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is one of the commands. Yeah. But that, that's further proof 
That's further proof that Adam was the head, right? He was holding Adam responsible for these conditions. And he had to keep Eve in check under those conditions, right? But, but, yeah. He, had a, he was responsible for Eve. And that, yeah.